If you've visited a marijuana dispensary, you're probably familiar with a few names of cannabis strains. Some of the popular ones have names like Lemon Haze and Sour Diesel and Bruce Banner. According to High Times Magazine, the greatest strain of all time is OG Kush. It's known for its potency, and even if you aren't a cannabis aficionado, you've probably heard it mentioned in pop culture. Songs are named after it, it's mentioned in movies. Of course, weed enthusiast Snoop Dogg has his own strain. There are strains named for Olympian Michael Phelps and former President Barack Obama. But back in the day, way before the stuff was legal, the system was more of a surprise. You know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. So how did Pinconning Paralyzer get its name? Well, that's just one of the things you'll learn thanks to the reporting of Gus Burns in part three of our series. Take a listen. That guy that I told you, my friend, that did that breeding and stuff, it just spread like fire everywhere. I'd say it was way more a Linwood thing than it was a Pinconic thing. There was a lot more people in Linwood that was there. Just everybody was growing weed everywhere. And it was all of that strain. You know, because there was no other strain in the day. It ain't like, you know, now there's thousands of them, right? Before I get into the busts and raids that led to the demise of pinconning paralyzer at the turn of the century, I wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about some conflicts with the pinconning paralyzer origin story. David Myers, who by many accounts is attributed as the creator, was only a high school kid when pinconning paralyzer first arrived on the scene in the mid to late 1970s. David Myers said he didn't ramp up his growing efforts until at least the early to mid 80s. Now you may remember Terry Laskowski from prior episodes. He's the Harley-riding fisherman who brought the rescued pinconning paralyzer seeds from a 1979 Union Hall party to his licensed grow earlier this year. He's adamant that it's not the Myers brothers who brought the seeds to that party, or the ones who created the strain. Obviously, everyone points to the Myers brothers as part of the originators, whether or not they were the, they weren't the person who brought the, the Myers brothers? Never heard of them. Okay. Um, well, I, I interviewed... Roger Myers and David Myers, and David Myers is the one who actually did some time in uh, about '99. There was a big yeah, raid. He got caught. He got caught with it. That don't mean shit. It just means he was a dummy who got caught. I never heard of Myers. Okay, so if, if they're grown and got caught with it, they had nothing to do with the origination of it. The originator of it was Dog. All right, and he incorporated the four guys that I know to help him. Now you're talking. I'm talking in the mid '70s, but not the '90s, the '70s. By the '90s, you don't think other people were growing it and selling it? Of course they were. Twenty years later, the people who've been busted—I don't know. I honestly, I, I don't. Uh, that, that's not the kind of people I hung around with. Most of the people I ran with were pretty smart, savvy. Never got in trouble. Never got caught. These guys got caught four times. You're telling me. That tells me they're idiots. All right, so yeah, like when you look, but when you look online, uh, if you look up a pinconning paralyzer, there's you'll find chat threads on different chat boards about marijuana and stuff, and pretty much everyone says, "Oh, it was founded by the Myers brothers, David Myers, and and that." But you you say that's not true. That's not true. Okay, and there's no chance that this person also knew the Myers brothers because they they had the same story. Someone brought the seeds back from Vietnam. Oh sure, sure. 
would they would have known them. But I know for the first five or six years, them guys didn't share it with nobody. Now you're talking they got busted in the eighties. Now yeah, I, I, they might have he might have sold some clothes by then. You know, because he's probably made enough money on it. David Myers, we earlier heard say that Pinconning Paralyzer was, quote, more of a Linwood thing. Linwood is a community directly south of Pinconning. That would align with what Terry Laskowski said. Terry identified a man nicknamed Dog as the one who actually brought the seeds home from Vietnam, but says he teamed up with some other buddies to crossbreed and grow it, which they did covertly through at least 1979. They were off Linwood. That's where they all grew up. And uh, he's uh, the other guy, Big Hank. Another big son of a bitch. Those three of them were huge guys. Two of them were real little guys. And they stuck together like rats, so. uh, Up until 79. I know in 79, we all got laid off. Kind of all went their own way. Terry's talking about when he worked at GM Powertrain in Bay City in the late 1970s. But they, I know they all went to work in, in, in uh, Fort Wayne because a good friend of mine told me that they're all working there. He said, them high dogs are all down here now. He said, they're doing it in the fields down here. We were laughing about it. I'm talking in 1983, probably, I was talking to him about it. He said, that's five guys are down there. And dog here just passed away about two years ago, the originator. Now, I wish he was alive because I'd, I'd try getting hold of him and have him talk to him. Because he he'd be the guy to talk to because he, he was the one who started it all. So I asked Terry a little more about this guy named Dog. Like, first of all, what was his real name? Terry gave it to me, and I typed it in. Up popped an obituary from 2019. Yes, look him up. See if he wasn't in the United States Army or Marine Corps, and see if he wasn't a medic while he was in there. And now verify what I'm telling you about who brought the seeds back. Died in 2019. Says from Pinconning, he's riding the eternal road now. Passed away on October 14, 2019. After a brief stay in Henry Ford, born in 1949 in California, uh, grew up in Linwood. At 18, he was drafted to the U.S. Army. So yeah, it sounds like sounds like him. Um, served as an army medic during Viet, served as an army medic during Vietnam War. Wow! Imagine that, eh? <laughs> I ain't bullshit. I'm telling you the truth, right? <laughs> He's the one who brought the seeds back, right there. I made numerous attempts to reach relatives listed in the obituary. Eventually, after a couple weeks of trying, I received a call from someone who said he was the son of Dog, the man believed to have brought the marijuana seeds to Michigan after serving in Vietnam. The son did not want his family name involved in this podcast, and he expressed that he was annoyed that Terry Laskowski even shared the name. He even mentioned possibly contacting an attorney if the family name was included. I hoped that he would share what he knew about his father's involvement with Pinconning Paralyzer's origins, but he declined. However, the sons are not entirely out of the picture, and you'll hear more about them in the final episode. Terry Laskowski's stories about that time frame resemble what David Myers also told me. The growing techniques were crude. They simply threw seeds in the ground, mainly clearing out sections of an unwitting farmer's field and planting hundreds of plants, not caring if they were male or female, which consequently meant bags of paralyzer at the time were filled with seeds. No matter who originated it, David Myers and his brothers were known growers of it in the area, and they were also known to police. As their knowledge of marijuana and horticulture grew, David Meyer said rather than planting seeds from one generation to the next, which creates more variable genetics, they began cloning using a process called air layering. This ensured the genetics of one plant 
and presumably the high from its buds, remain the same as the last. An air layer is when you grow a plant, whatever it is, whether it's how they grow fruit trees and all that shit, and you scrape the bark, and then you put the moss on there. So you could do, like, you could grow a plant, and you could put, like, 10, 20 air layers on there, and then the roots grow in that thing, and you go below it, and you cut it off, and that is really a clone. It's exactly 100% clone. That was the only way of cloning, you know, that anybody really knew of. And then, you know, the cloning thing came in. And then once that came in, you know, then everybody was doing it. Every, I mean, you could go around here to any cornfield that was around here, you'd get some dope. Because they were just, people were just, it was crazy. And then some stupid person or whatever made a story to the high times just kind of like what I'm saying what this story is and then it got printed and then heat high times magazine is a marijuana devoted magazine founded in 1974 supposedly it was funded with the sales of illegal marijuana and meant to be a one-off spoof of playboy the centerfold would be a marijuana bud instead of a woman. However, the joke became viable business. People bought the magazine and the company is still around today. High Times played a brief but pivotal role in the legacy of pinconning Paralyzer. It was 1987 and someone, I was never able to find out, submitted a photo of a marijuana bud that was from the strain that the Myers brothers were helping to spread across the state. It didn't really have a name at the time. According to several people I interviewed, it was sometimes referred to as Paralyzer, based on the sedative effects but also sometimes purple paralyzer. The purple descriptor was attributed to the color that really isn't genetic at all. It's often the result of being grown outdoors in colder weather. Anyway, without a name, High Times gave it one, and it appeared as the centerfold with the name Pinconning Paralyzer. I recently reached out to High Times staff to see if they would check their archives and verify when the Pinconning Paralyzer bud was published. Everyone I spoke with claimed it was 1987, but none had a copy of the old magazine issue. From High Times creative director Frank Max, I received a forwarded email response. It said, quote, After an initial search of our archives, I can neither confirm nor deny publication of this story or strain in High Times. My search turned up no mention of pinconning paralyzer. However, I did come across two links below online if Gus wants to head down that rabbit hole, unquote. One of the first two links Frank Max of High Times sent me was to a story about Larry Myers, the brother with MS who died in 2012. The story was written in 2008, shortly after medical marijuana was legalized in Michigan. Quote, I had three kinds of pot, good, better, and best, Myers told the reporter. The state police said it was the best marijuana they had ever seized. It was dubbed in high times as pinconning paralyzer. By this point in time, police knew what pinconning paralyzer was. They knew it was potent, and they saw it on the front page of a national magazine. They also had some idea of where it was coming from. October 25th of 1990, less than three years after police first raided Larry Myers' home in a bust that was discussed in greater detail in the last episode, law enforcement from Bayonet were back, and they weren't messing around. Armed with a search warrant, they smashed in the door of Larry's home with a battering ram. According to court records, a man named Lyle Helms was arrested for possession with intent to deliver marijuana, the manufacture of marijuana, and possession of LSD. As is customary with many drug busts, the officers wanted bigger fish. Larry Myers and his brother, David Myers, became those fish. Police claimed that Helms told them that Larry Myers was selling multiple pounds of marijuana per week and that he was growing it in an underground trailer. The entrance of that trailer was supposedly covered with a motor block. 
Police also testified that they'd heard from informants that after his 1987 bust, Larry buried multiple trailers on his property. He was supposedly growing inside the underground lair and selling up to 50 pounds per week. I asked both of Larry's brothers if he had underground grow trailers, and they adamantly deny it. That's yes. totally 100% bullshit. 100%. All the underground shit is totally bullshit. You can't bury a semi-trailer underground. Their attorney, who we met in a previous episode, Ed Saprinsky, in court filings called the buried grow trailer rumors, quote, poppycock. But police maintained otherwise, quote, just because we didn't find them doesn't mean they weren't there, unquote, an officer testified at a hearing following the bust. On a side note, I did receive a call from Larry Myers' son, Lane Myers. Lane called me on Mother's Day after a story published on him live about how John Laskowski was trying to revive pin-conning paralyzer in the legal market. Lane was angry. He couldn't believe a company was trying to monetize the strain his dad helped make famous, while it was their family that endured the busts and prosecution throughout his childhood. Over a nearly 45-minute unrecorded conversation, he was rattling off parts of stories, speaking a mile a minute. He does remember crawling through a tunnel that led to a hidden grow room as a kid. He also talked about police raiding his family home when he was celebrating his sixth birthday. Before we hung up, we exchanged information and planned to meet for a formal interview the following week up in Pinconning. But that never happened. Lane at the time was living in Arizona and had only been home for a brief visit over Mother's Day. He left the state, but we continued to text. We should do a documentary, he text messaged me on May 10th. My family is cool, most of them. Some still think they can get arrested for talking about something 20 years later. The next day, he sent me a picture of Pinconning Paralyzer hot sauce that sells at one of the cheese shops in Pinconning. He said the hot sauce guy was his dad's friend. It has a weed leaf on there and says the weed capital of the world in honor of my dad, he texted to me. A few minutes later, another text. It was a photo of a hand holding a Ziploc bag filled with seeds. It said in the text, not from 1975, but from about 2005. Lane then said he wanted to meet in June when he returned to Michigan for a long-distance mountain bike race. Quote, my family always wanted to do a book or something, and this is even cooler. It's something to have for historical records, he texted. But I didn't hear back from him until later that month after he said we'd meet up. He'd already gone again and apologized for being flaky. He then sent another flurry of texts on July 1st. We can't get in trouble for anything we say now, right? He asked. We can tell the actual truth, including how Bayonet lied to get the search warrant. The leader of Bayonet was Don something. He was after my dad, made up lies. The case was dismissed because he lied on the affidavit for the search warrant, so anything they found was not admissible. I assured Lane that anything that was done illegally regarding marijuana that long ago in the past was no longer prosecutable. I continued messaging him through August, trying to get him to call me for an interview. He never did, and eventually stopped responding altogether. Within his text, Lane mentioned a, quote, Don something, who was involved in his dad's bust. It appears Saginaw police officer Donald Morse, who led the bayonet case against Larry in 1990, is who he was referring to. Morse is the one who wrote the affidavit that was submitted to the court in order to get the search warrant. As I was calling people named in the court files, I was able to reach Donald Morse, now retired, by phone. He told me they were looking for the pin-conning paralyzer motherload and the rumored underground trailers, but never could find them. He agreed to a subsequent phone interview, but later stopped taking or responding to my calls. The police raid at Larry Meyer's house didn't reveal any mother load of marijuana, or at least the one investigators were hoping for. Investigators seized about 9 ounces of marijuana and $18,000 in cash, but they wanted more. 
Police said some of the weed they found was, quote, wet, fresh, and green, meaning it had been recently harvested, but they didn't find the source on Larry Meyer's property. I did visit Larry Meyer's old address where this raid happened while reporting this story. You could see a fenced-in garden with a legal number of marijuana plants in it from the road. The new owner, who didn't wish to be named, has lived there since about the time of Larry's second bust. He gave me a quick tour and said when he moved in there was no sign of underground trailers or a grow operation. But police at the time thought the source of the marijuana they found in Larry's house might be his brother, who lived about seven miles away. Quote, Myers did tell us that a box of what appeared to be human hair was used to keep mice away from the plants. We did not see any evidence of a garden, unquote. Police wrote in the affidavit for a search warrant they were later granted to Dave Myers' property. Well, what happened is when that all went down over to Larry's, I knew about it immediately, of course, right? And I just, you know, whatever. I mean, what am I going to do? You know, they're over there trying to look for semi-trailers underground, and, you know, it's just not even feasible to bury a semi-trailer underground. I mean, I don't know what the hell fables, you know, stories. And they came over here the next day. There was a guy parked right there in the morning, right at the end of the driveway right there, and he had a hat on that said Michigan State Police. And he come out there and asked me, did you hear what happened? I said, no, I didn't hear what happened. What happened? He said, oh, well, we must busted your brother Larry yesterday, and we're looking for semi-trailers buried underground. We didn't find any over there. We were wondering if you got them buried out here. I said, are you fucking stupid? Came here so all day long. I mean, that guy was here early in the morning. All day long, they tried going to all these judges to get him to sign a warrant to come here, and none of the judges would sign it. So they just waited until the court closed, and then they talked the magistrate in the signing. And in the meantime, <clears throat> during the day, I had shot a deer with my bow, and it was hanging in the garage. And the DNR don't need a warrant to come on your property. If they can see something in the garage, the pole barn door was open, they could see a deer hanging in there. So that's how the DNR guy came. And then there was, I'm going to say, 25, 30 guys at the end of my driveway right there. Yeah, all down the road, they had a bucket of chicken on the top of the car there, and I'm doing the dishes. I send my wife off, get out of here, you don't need to be here. Bayonet Detective Donald Morse would later testify that another reason he believed there was a grow operation at David Meyer's property was based on a couple-year-old tip. About three years prior, a lost semi-driver hauling a load of hydroponics grow equipment, stopped in downtown Pinconning. He was asking for directions to David Meyer's home. David told me that was probably true. He was about to start a grow in a barn with another partner, but he grew suspicious and backed out. So did you have, did you end up having to hide stuff like when you talked to your brother? And... No. no. I didn't have to. I never would be stupid enough to have the stuff at my house. And, I mean, they came here, and even after they got the warrant, they searched here for six hours, and then right out here, right in the middle of the backyard, they're like, oh, look at this weed on the ground, just laying on top of the ground. Look at this weed. Yeah, you freaking cocksuckers. They put it there. They put the weed there. Yeah, so that's what I'm going to do. I got all day to get rid of some weed if I'm going to, and I'm going to dump it in the backyard. Come on. Police said as they waited out front for a search warrant, someone crawled out of a window with a garbage bag filled with marijuana and dumped it in the backyard. 
Multiple officers spent a long time picking the buds out of the grass under the moon using flashlights. They eventually collected a total of about 10 ounces, according to court and seizure records. Detective Morse, on one hand during testimony, described David Myers as being, quote, hostile and uncooperative, but then later said he confessed to dumping that weed after being read as Miranda writes. David Myers told me that's possible, but he doesn't remember it. During the all-day siege of David Myers' home, after police were inside with a search warrant, Morse said the phone rang. A woman was on the other end. Morse told the woman David was in the shower. He gave a fake name and asked what she needed. The woman placed an order for a pound of weed. Police then filled a Ziploc bag with the marijuana they claimed to have picked up from the yard. Eventually, a man arrived to make the deal and the pickup. Lieutenant Thomas Mattiolo, at the time a bayonet member acting in an undercover capacity, accepted $2,400 in cash from the man, who told him, quote, Tell Dave this is for the half a pound I got last week, and the rest is for this pound, unquote. Once they made the exchange, Mattiolo made the arrest. Following the bust, David Myers and Larry Myers were each charged with felony possession with intent to deliver marijuana, punishable by up to four years in prison, but they got off. Attorney Ed Saprinsky represented both brothers. He filed motions to suppress the evidence on the basis that the search warrant was built on lies. Helms, the guy who supposedly saw Larry's underground trailer grow, later testified during a deposition that he never even met Larry Myers. He said, quote, I flat out stated that I grow my own marijuana, which was stupid, but I didn't buy none from nobody, unquote. Morse was also grilled during one hearing about the confession that he claimed David Myers made. His initial report said nothing about it. You just forgot? Is that your testimony? Saprinsky asked Morse while he was on the stand. Yes, sir, the veteran detective responded. Just forgot a confession, Saprinsky continued. That's correct, Morse said. A Bay County judge determined the basis for the search at Larry Myers' home was the belief that he had underground trailers, yet the search warrant never mentioned those trailers. The evidence for the search of Larry's home then served as the basis for the search of David's home. Both cases were ultimately dismissed. That's what Leandowski was the judge, and he said the only freaking reason he went there is because he was his brother. That's the only reason. It was nothing to do with the weed, nothing to do with nothing. That's basically how it got thrown out. As far as I know, I don't know. I mean, Ed would tell you more than than I know about that. So then, uh, I assume that irritated the police. They probably... Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Totally irritated them. But then you, totally. you went another almost decade before you had any more trouble, though, right? Yeah. And that was from the feds, though. That wasn't from them. That was from the feds. I got busted by them. Things with police remained pretty quiet for the Myers brothers between 1990 and 1999. Then a traffic stop changed all that. So, so what happened is they identified themselves. He came out to the road with this large garbage bag, and the troops were standing, hidden in the like, in the in the tall trees along the road. And they they identified themselves, and he looked at them, and his his words were "fuck you," and turned and ran. And that's when money and marijuana started flying out. That's Sergeant Mike Curtis, who was involved in a traffic stop that led to the 1999 raid of David Meyer's home and an eventual federal indictment. February 19, 1999, on the front page of the Bay City Times, was a story headlined, Officers Hope Raid Snuffs Out Potent Pot. The lead of the story reads, Police have apparently pulled the plug on the pinconning paralyzer. The accompanying photo shows three lawmen, including Bayonet Drug Task Force Commander Kenneth Bennett, at a podium emblazoned with a Michigan State Police emblem. 
The entire floor before them is covered with property seized from David Meyer's home and other properties police searched on February 17, 1999. There's $21,220 in cash, 7 pounds of harvested marijuana, a portion of 1,334 marijuana plants police removed, a dozen long guns, and hydroponic grow equipment. Police estimated the street value of the marijuana to be about $5.5 million and called it the largest marijuana bust in the area ever. This is a bust that most people who know about Pinconic Paralyzer remember. It's the one that pushed it back underground and severely changed the lives of the Myers brothers. It began with a traffic stop involving David Myers' son and one of his friends. They were driving with a burnout headlight. It ended with a short foot chase outside of David Myers' home as he tried to flee his arms full with an overflowing bag brimming with cash and marijuana. There was always rumors that the Spencani Paralyzer was the biggest grow operation up in northern Bay County and, and that there was school buses buried on all kinds of property and hidden rooms. And um, I never had any part of it, never found any of that. I can tell you that it was a young kid. He was probably like 18, 19 years old at the time, and he was with his friend. I can tell you exactly where we stopped him. It was at the Pinconning uh, I-75, the truck stop, Sunoco Station there. Um, you know, and, 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 and talking with him and searching the car behind the seat, I found a uh, how much it weighed. I can't remember, but it was a it was a like a Ziploc, maybe a quart size bag full of fresh marijuana. So and you know, it wasn't it wasn't packed. So you know, right. that led to further questioning, and that's which you know led on to the, to the larger. Um, and kind of how it happened was when the son got to jail, he was allowed to use the phone unbeknownst to us and he called and tipped off his dad and his dad then came out with the marijuana but we already had troopers watching the house and that's so that's why he came uh, out running he was trying to hide i just remember back then it was a big deal and there was rumored that there was all kinds of marijuana and grows hidden and, and I, i'm I, i'm pretty sure they got a bunch of grows you know as part of the seizure you know back like following the following week or two after this stop, it, it, it spread out to a bunch of different residences and they found different grows. This was exponentially larger than prior raids at Larry and David's homes. And this time, law enforcement was taking their case to the feds. Why'd they make that choice? Well, convictions are easier to get in federal court and punishments are harsher. And police weren't having that great of luck in state court. The last drug case against the Myers brothers nearly a decade earlier fell apart. The feds caught a guy with the right amount. Um, you're looking at a minimum mandatory sentence, five years, 10 years, 15 years, depending upon the level and the amount that you involved. It was a schedule run drug. So you get caught with a certain amount of marijuana, you're looking at a minimum mandatory, no differently than you'd look at a minimum mandatory for crack and or powdered cocaine. Getting cases to trial in state court are far more difficult than they are in federal court just because of the sheer volume of cases. Marijuana cases don't carry the kind of importance that a murder case does, or armed robberies do, and so therefore they keep getting pushed off. So it was easier when these task forces would make a bust to turn it over to the federal authorities if the, if the amount was sufficient, because the penalties would be greater because of the sentencing guidelines. That's Jeffrey Swartz, currently a professor of law with Western Michigan University Cooley Law School, a former county and state prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, and magistrate judge. He's sharing his theory on why police sometimes pursue drug charges in federal court rather than the state courts. It was bullshit. And I saved my family and I saved a lot of people. 
from getting in trouble and did my time and it's over and I don't really want right. to do that. No, no. The, but you know, a lot of the the legend or whatever, it'll always be a legend, no matter you know, even if you write the story or whatever. This bust at David Myers' house led to the arrests and/or indictments of David Myers and six other people, including his wife Judy, brother Roger Myers, and sister-in-law Melin, as well as three other conspirators. David Myers thinks police felt he was rubbing their noses in his pin-conning paralyzer success. At the time, he was building a brand new home immediately next door to the one he still lives in today. The house that was eventually built is still next door also. David Myers said his parents were putting up the money and that it wasn't being paid for, at least up front, with paralyzer proceeds. My parents uh, uh, gave me the money to build the house, and then when the house was built, then I was going to get a mortgage on the house. I never got that far. That's because following the bus at David's home, the house he was building next door was seized by the federal government. And just a couple years later, it would be sold for more than $259,000 by the U.S. Marshal Service. After his arrest, news stories say David Myers directed police to a pole barn on Maloney Road in Pinconning. It's in there that he had a sophisticated grow operation with movable track lighting, and he acknowledged it was, quote, the largest marijuana indoor grow in mid-Michigan, unquote. According to the indictments, David Myers was the ringleader who provided the, quote, mother plants, unquote, and operated grows containing thousands of plants. He kept cash and the marijuana that they had for sale at the property where he was building the new home. One of the other defendants, Randall Walter Augustniak, who news stories noted was a former local politician, a trustee in Pinconning Township, provided the pole barn for the indoor grow facility that allowed them to avoid the pesky state boys in their heat-seeking helicopters. David Myers' wife, Judy Myers, was charged with a crime for tipping off the other conspirators so that they could hide their property before police seized it. Roger Myers was accused of witness tampering or intimidation, along with distribution, which his wife, Malin, was also charged with. There was a separate but linked investigation to another, smaller, 125-plant grow in Cairo, Michigan, that was being operated by Ken Walling and Terry Lee Edwards. Police were led to that grow after they attached a tracking device to Walling's 1987 Dodge pickup. Walling would eventually testify against the other defendants in the case, and he received a plea deal that limited his sentence to four years probation. He died at age 58 after falling 13 feet from a ladder onto concrete while remodeling a home. Roger and Malin pleaded to a felony but evaded jail time. In exchange, they had to agree to forfeit their home. David Meyer's wife, Judy, pleaded to a lesser charge of misdemeanor possession and received two years probation. Augustniak was the only one who went to trial. He was found guilty of felony conspiracy to manufacture marijuana and sentenced to two years in prison. Terry Lee Edwards pleaded to a felony and he served a year and a half plus two years supervised release. David Myers pleaded guilty to a felony charge of conspiracy to manufacture marijuana, in which he agreed to cooperate with the prosecution in exchange for a maximum of 10 years in prison, which is ultimately what he received. But as he approached the halfway mark, the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a motion on David Myers' behalf to have his sentence reduced. Basically, what it was is I, because they didn't want to do a forfeiture action against my house or nothing, I kind of basically worked in that deal where I would help them with a couple other guys that were involved in it and just tell my story what happened 
basically sign over the house, give it to them, and the land, and then uh, that's a form of cooperation, they call it. So Rule 35 is what it is. It's like if you're a snitch. During our conversation, I noticed that David Myers was much more reluctant to speak about the 99 bus. The court records are so old that the files have been transferred to the National Archives in Chicago. It took me several months just to obtain the indictments, and they didn't have much detail. What was a uh, federal prison like? Yeah. <laughs> prison not tough. Better state, but... Oh, yeah. It was way better than state. I mean, if there is such a thing as, you know... A you good go thing? To yeah, because I went through the drug program. So I was in, I went to FCI Morgantown, West Virginia. And it's, it's a next level up from a camp. There is no fences or nothing. You could just take off if you wanted to. It's up. It's up. Well, I mean, my and wife. And you had kids at Kids. Fuck yeah. How old were your kids? kids? Young. Young. Mm-hmm. How old was Minnie? Third grade, fourth grade. Yeah. My kids were right in the prime time when I should have been here. Yeah. Sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a chance to go visit them ever, or was it kind of just your time? Yeah, but not too much. I I didn't really like it. I didn't like it for my kids. I didn't like it for me. Mm. It's hard. It's hard leaving. Family. We got to, to see him graduate and stuff. Or oh, I got out before that. Well, Minnie and Ashley. Right, right, yeah. It was just a sucky part that I don't even really like going there. It's not like pin-counting paralyzer totally vanished, but it was this bus that started the decline in visibility and popularity. David Myers would tell you that the black market was already moving on to better strains as the area growers became more skilled and that pin-counting paralyzers' golden years were behind it, something that still remains to be seen. In the final episode, we'll catch up with John Laskowski, the operator of Bullet Bud's Grow Facility in Bay City, and find out what's become of those little seeds his dad's friend rescued in the 1970s. Is it all hype and nostalgia? Or just maybe, does pin-counting paralyzer still have a future? Don't forget to join us next week for the conclusion of our Pin Counting Paralyzer series. And in the meantime, if you appreciate the work of journalists like Gus Burns, consider becoming an MLive subscriber. You can find all of our other podcast offerings by visiting MLive.com slash podcasts. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back here next week. Rich me from our-